Chapter Eleven: My Lord Turns Rescuer and Comes Nigh to Losing His Life. Part One of Black Moth by Georgette Heyer, read for LibriVox.org into the public domain. Late that afternoon, Carstairs left Thurs' house on one of his friend's horses. He waved a very regretful farewell to O'Hara and his lady, promising to let them know his whereabouts and to visit them again soon. O'Hara had extracted a solemn promise that if he ever got into difficulties he would let him know. "'For I'm not letting you drift gaily out of my life again, and that's flat.' Jack had assented gladly enough. To have a friend once more was such bliss, and he had given Miles the name of the inn and the village where he could find him, for O'Hara had insisted on bringing the mare over himself. So Carstairs rode off to Trencham and to Jim, with the memory of a very hearty handshake in his mind. He smiled a little as he thought of his friend's words, when he had shown himself reluctant to give the required promise. "'Ye obstinate young devil! You'll do as I say and no nonsense, or ye don't leave this house.' For six years no one had ordered him to obey. It had been he who had done all the ordering. Somehow it was very pleasant to be told what to do, especially by Miles. He turned down a lane and wondered what Jim was thinking. That he was waiting at the green man he was certain, for those had been his orders. He was annoyed with the man over the incident of the pistols, for he had inspected them and discovered that they were indeed unloaded. Had his captor been other than O'Hara, on whom he could not fire, such carelessness might have proved his undoing. Apart from that, culpable negligence always roused his wrath. A rather warm twenty minutes was in store for Salter. For quite an hour Carstairs proceeded on his way with no mishaps nor adventures, then suddenly, as he rounded a corner of a deserted road, little more than a cart-track, an extraordinary sight met his eyes. In the middle of the road stood a coach, and by it, covering the men on the box with two large pistols, was a seedy-looking ruffian, while two others were engaged in what appeared to be a life-and-death struggle at the coach-door. Jack reined in his horse and rose in his stirrups to obtain a better view. Then his eyes flashed, and he whistled softly to himself. For the cause of all the turmoil was a slight, graceful girl of not more than nineteen or twenty. She was frenziedly resisting the efforts of her captors to drag her to another coach, further up the road. Jack could see that she was dark and very lovely. Another elderly lady was most valiantly impeding operations by clawing and striking at one of the men's arms, scolding and imploring all in one breath. Jack's gaze went from her to a still, silent figure at the side of the road in the shadow of the hedge, evidently the stage-manager. "'It seems I must take a hand in this,' he told himself, and laughed joyously, as he fixed on his mask and dismounted. He tethered his mount to a young sapling, took a pistol from its holster, and ran softly and swiftly under the lee of the hedge up to the scene of disaster, just as the man who covered the unruly and vociferous pair on the box made ready to fire. Jack's bullet took him neatly in the neck, and without a sound he crumpled up, one of his pistols exploding harmlessly as it fell to earth. With an oath the silent onlooker wheeled round to face the point of my lord's gleaming blade. Carstairs drew in his breath sharply in surprise, as he saw the white face of his grace of Andover. "'Damn you!' said Tracy calmly, and sprang back, whipping out his own rapier. "'Certainly,' agreed Jack pleasantly. "'En garde, monsieur le duc!' Tracy's lips curled back in a snarl. His eyes were almost shut. Over his shoulder he ordered curtly, "'Keep watch over the girl. I will attend this young jackanapes.' On the word the blades clashed. Jack's eyes danced with the sheer joy of battle, and his point snicked in and out wickedly. He knew Tracy of old for an expert swordsman, and he began warily. The girl's persecutors retained a firm hold on either arm, but all their thoughts were centred on the duel. 
The men on the box got out their blunderbuss, ready to fire should the need arise, and the girl herself watched breathlessly, red lips apart, and eyes aglow with fright, indignation, and excitement. As for the old lady, she positively bobbed up and down, shrieking encouragement to Carstairs. The blades hissed continuously against one another. Time after time the Duke thrust viciously, and ever his point was skilfully parried. He was absolutely calm, and his lips sneered. Who it was that he was fighting, he had not the faintest idea. He only knew that his opponent had recognized him, and must be speedily silenced. Therefore he fought with deadly grimness and purpose. Carstairs, on the other hand, had no intention of killing his grace. He had never liked him in the old days, but he was far too good-natured to contemplate any serious bloodshed. He was so used to Tracy's little affairs that he had not been filled with surprise when he discovered who the silent figure was. He did not like interfering with Belmanois, but on the other hand, he could no more stand by and see a woman assaulted than he could fly. So he fought on with the idea of disarming his grace, so as to have him at a disadvantage, and to be able to command his withdrawal from the scene. Once he fainted cleverly, and lunged, and a little blood trickled down over the duke's hand. No sign made Belmanois, except that his eyelids flickered a moment, and his play became more careful. Once the duke thrust in tierce, and Jack's sword-arm wavered an instant, and a splash of crimson appeared on his sleeve. He for the most part remained on the defensive, waiting for the duke to tire. Soon his grace's breath began to come unevenly and fast, and beads of moisture started on his forehead. Yet never did the sneer fade, nor his temper go. He had himself well in hand, and although his face was livid, and his brain on fire with fury, no trace of it showed itself in his sword-play. Then Carstairs changed his tactics, and began to put into practice all the arts and subtleties of fence that he had learnt abroad. He seemed made of steel and set on wires, so agile and untirable was he. Time after time he leapt nimbly aside, evading some wicked thrust, and all the while he was driving his grace back and back. He was not panting, and now and again he laughed softly and happily. The blood from the wound on his arm was dripping steadily onto the ground, yet it seemed to Tracy to affect him not at all. But Jack himself knew that he was losing strength rapidly, and must make an end. Suddenly he fainted, and fell back. Tracy saw his advantage, and pressed forward within the wavering sword-point. The next instant his sword was whirled from his grasp, and he lay on the ground, unhurt but helpless, gazing up at the masked face and at the shortened rapier. How he had been thrown he did not know, but that his opponent was a past master in the art of fence he was perfectly sure. My lord gave a little chuckle and twisted a handkerchief about his wounded arm. "'I am aware, monsieur, that this is most unusual, and in duels forbidden. But I am sure that my lord will agree that the circumstances are also most unusual, and the odds almost overwhelming.' He turned his head to the two men, one of whom released his hold on the girl's arm and started forward. "'Oh, no!' drawled my lord, shaking his head. "'Another step, and I spit your master where he lies.' "'Stand,' said his grace, calmly. "'Bien!' "'Throw your arms down here at my feet, and, uh, release mademoiselle.' They made no move to obey, and my lord shrugged deprecatingly, lowering his point to Tracy's throat. End of chapter 11, part 1. Read by Sibella Denton. For more free audiobooks or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org.